0: You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. This morning, Let's continue our series, False Faith, that we started last week, turning uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Now, while you're doing that, I just want to say, uh, I know I'll let you know last week that uh, one of the books that gave rise to this series entitled The Unsaved Christian, The Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah, uh, which we have, I think, still maybe a couple of copies in our bookstore. I know James Richards has been talking to me about reading it um, and the impact that it's having on him. But in there, one of the, the things that Sarah points out in the U.S. that often is a substitute for biblical faith, the kind of faith that makes us right with God and leads to our increased holiness and sanctification, is a kind of civic Christianity, a kind of civic Christianity that's seen um, only on the surface level in institutions and places throughout our country that allow people to feel good, to feel that they're, they're part of a larger Thing called Christianity because uh, they're not Muslims, they're not Jews, they're not Hindus or Buddhists, they're Westerners, they're Americans, therefore they're Christians. And then Sarah talked about having uh, his own experience in St. Louis when he was at uh, a baseball game there, and the seventh inning stretch came uh, about on a Sunday, and everybody rose and stood and sang, God bless America. And he knew from the church planting efforts of the North American Mission Board that St. Louis was one of the cities that's not true, it was in Cincinnati, It's a Reds game Cincinnati was one of the cities that is most in need of new churches and new home missionaries or church planters to go there uh, and by the spirit of God um, begin new works, he said, but he was amazed at at the tens of thousands of people so passionately singing God Bless America, he thought Nam must have gotten this one wrong Um, and he went back and researched it some, and now they'd gotten it right. They'd gotten it right. Less than 13% of that city attends on any regular basis an evangelical Christian church. And yet everybody was standing to sing God Bless America as a, a picture of this kind of civic Christianity that acknowledges God, but is focused on outward appearance and actions, people that take civic Uh, faith, civic Christianity really seriously, it's important to them to be seen uh, the right way, to look the right way, to go to the right places for the right reasons. It's a kind of um, uh, uh, moralistic deism that acknowledges a God, absolutely. And the more serious ones will acknowledge uh, Jesus Christ in a generic way as Lord and Savior, but not in a personal way, because they don't really need this born-again experience like other people do, like really sinful people do. Um, Jesus, dealing with some of the same issues in his day, gave a brief parable that we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. Luke chapter 18, I'll read verses 9 through 14. To some, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray this morning. Father God, as we place ourselves before the beauty and the power and the authority of your word, I pray that we would do so with humility, submission, Hunger, awe, God, in a sense of delight and worship for who you are and for what you've done in our lives. Father, wherever we are this morning individually, whatever happened on the way to church this morning or maybe before we even left the house, Father, or last night, help us to bring ourselves to you with no masks with no pretense God with nothing other than hunger and a desire to hear from you and to obey God speak to us now as we gather in a way that only you can do do what only you can do Father what human gifting and preparation can't even come close to doing speak to our hearts speak to our minds Leave us changed this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, In in Sarah's book of this kind of civic religion that clarifies and characterizes cultural Christianity, he says this, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. He goes on and writes this, and I find this a, a particularly helpful single statement. He says, cultural Christians usually believe the only difference between you and them is that you are just a little more into Christianity. We'll be talking about starting points with how is it that we engage a family and friends, neighbors, co-workers, classmates with the gospel when we sense from knowing them that they are indeed a cultural Christian, not a New Testament believer, not the kind of man or woman that the New Testament describes as being a follower of Jesus. And one of the ways that we begin to approach that is to understand their thinking, that they don't see themselves as non Christian. Some of you here this morning in a church our size will fit into this category. Cultural Christians raised in a home familiar at least with the gospel. Maybe you pray before meals sometimes, at least uh, when your mom and dad or grandparents are here. Go to church, maybe even consistently, but simply have never come to a place of spirit-led awareness of how deeply sinful you are personally and in need of Jesus. And this defines cultural Christians. They'll say, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, they'll even believe in the Bible, which gives us actually a great starting point as we seek to live missionally and evangelistically in the suburban area of the Bible Belt. But the way they understand themselves compared to you is just as in Sarah said. They're the same. You're just a little more into it, right? You're a Shiite Christian, special operations Christian. They're just regular old infantry. What we find in this story with Jesus is that there's often... A chasm, not a minor difference, a great unbridgeable canyon between those who know and are aware of the depth of their own sin and those who are not. And this morning we'll kind of organize our look at, at this parable in Luke 18 around three things. It basically is a tale of two men, two prayers, and two destinies. Let's look at the two men we find out in verse 10 that two men went up, that's just geographically up, the temple was on a high place, went up to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Probably these were at the normal times of prayer at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. during the, the routine Jewish day. And don't think of them going up to prayer in kind of a silent, private, personal way that you and I often think of, of prayer. This is a very public practice with prayer said out loud. They're going up, and we know already by by Luke's setup in verse 9 that Jesus is telling this story to a group who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Those two things usually go together, don't they? Someone who's confident of their own righteousness often looks down on others. Since Jake mentioned The Office, I'll Not Be Outdone. There's a great two-part episode in uh, the sixth season of The Office where Jim and Pam are getting married. It's a destination wedding like so many do today. And as the families are coming in, they're being introduced to to Pam's grandmother who's very self-righteous and delighted to look down on everyone. And someone leans in and says, Where is your grandmother? And she says, She's right over there. She's the lady with no smile lines. And after meeting Jim and his family, she is sitting at the table, and Pam goes over to talk to her, says, Hi, Grandma. And she says, Hello. She says, You know, I wasn't sure about you and Jim with your side of the family, but seeing you guys together, you're just perfect. And she says, Ah, Grandma. No one's perfect. And the grandma says, if I believe that, I wouldn't want to live in this world. The self-righteous often look down on everyone else. You've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. Many of you are familiar with this. Some of you are not. And some of us might just need a refresher. But Pharisee has a negative connotation to us in our day. Jesus started that. That was not true in his day. Pharisees were highly religious, highly focused, highly devoted laymen in Jewish religious culture and world. They were sticklers to the letter of the law, much of which they'd helped create, not the law itself, but all the fleshing out of it and what it meant to do this and to not do that. They were admired. They were viewed as better than the average faithful Jew's by other Jews, and by themselves. Uh, I heard a a preacher the other day talking about how you know, Pharisees get a bad rap in our day, but they were really sincere in what they did. And I, I was thinking, and I was thinking, yeah, you may be right. And I thought, no, they get a bad rap because Jesus gave them a bad rap. Because Jesus made them the point of caution and instruction in most of his stories. And he confronted them every chance he got. They displayed a false faith that was built on their own human goodness and religious works. How do you see yourself this morning? This is a danger that lurks at the doorstep of all of us. And the longer we've been in church, the more this danger lurks at our door. To view ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, to look down on those who do this or who do that, who vote this way or maybe vote that way, who don't have the initiative that we have. This is in all of us. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, So the greatest enemy to human souls, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Alexander McLaren said, that which of all things unfits man for the reception of Christ as a Savior is not, now don't miss this, is not gross recklessness and outward vehement transgression but self-complacency, self-righteousness, and self-sufficiency. I can display all three of those. I'm a good little church boy. And I desperately need God's help and God's sustaining grace to live with a spirit and an attitude of repentance where I'm aware every single day that I am a sinner absolutely deserving of God's momentary and eternal judgment and yet and yet he's called me out of darkness into his light through faith in his son and showed me grace and mercy the Pharisees corruption of along with the scribes and teachers of the law The faith in their day is part of why uh, Jesus set up the New Testament church and organized it in the way that he did to provide a, a category of individuals responsible. Responsible in the life of the church for the doctrine, the direction, and yes, the discipline of individual church members should it be needed. This morning, you'll look, if you uh, have your program, you'll have one half sheet in there that will have the pictures and short, brief bios of the men that we're putting before you, uh, if you're a covenant member, to affirm in a couple of weeks as our, I would say our initial elders, but our church had elders in its history. We're just returning to that biblical practice, but at least uh, in, in modern years of recent, for our first team Body of elders. Um, I just want to put their names out there for you can read more about them. If you're a covenant member, you'll get more information this week, and you guys will have two weeks from today uh, to, to email me uh, or Jake if there's any concerns that you have about any of this men serving, any of these men serving as elders. Um, You've got David McGinnis. David Conley, Tim Holly, which for me we admitted was a little shady, but we feel like the other four will gravitationally pull him up. Dale Wolf and Ron Delaney. I'll also say this: if you're new to this or you're you're just learning about eldership in churches, you may presume from the tad bit of grayness displayed in the hair of some of those pictures, that that elder means older. It does in some places in the Bible, but New Testament elders are defined primarily by a sense of calling, by God's Spirit, which Paul says in the book of Acts, places them in the church as overseers in the church, and character. Being that we're uh, moving forms of governance here, though, we wanted to put before you men that we felt like you knew well enough to be comfortable with, who have shown themselves faithful and sacrificial and consistent here for your consideration. I'll just say one more thing about this before we move on. If you look at the New Testament and study the New Testament carefully, you'll see that it teaches this about the categories of individuals in the life of a church, that God has ordained uh, elders to lead the ministry of the church. God has ordained deacons to facilitate the ministry of the church and God has ordained that members carry out the ministry of the church and when each does their part it creates by God's grace a great unity and momentum in a church and it helps provide for the protection and the unity of a church so that you don't have people coming into the church teaching whatever they want to, adding to things and moving things around as the Pharisees were apt to do in their day. To say, oh, God God wasn't careful enough when he said you should not do this, so we're going to put eight lanes before that. And then say, now you're required to do this. And the people of God began to drift doctrinally under the lives and the teaching of the Scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisee wasn't the only one that went up to the temple, though, was he? There was also a tax collector. Nobody, nobody likes tax collectors. In fact, if if you enjoy paying taxes today, you're sick. And you should seek professional help. I was thinking the other day of how much it annoyed me to pay transportation taxes when I buy a vehicle and then transportation taxes when I register that vehicle and then transportation taxes when I buy gas and then transportation taxes when I live in a state. It's amazing if you study, and I won't spend any time on this, the history of taxation in the U.S., we have gotten extremely good at something that we used to be intentionally minimalistic about. Nobody likes tax collectors. In Jesus' day, many of you will know that they didn't just dislike them, they hated them. Their tithes weren't even accepted in worship. I got to tell you, I'd accept anybody's tithes in worship. We would pray over them, we would ordain them, we would consecrate them, we would commit them to the Lord, and then we would deposit them (laughs) to the glory of God and advance of the gospel. But not in their day. If you had a tax collector in your family, you didn't admit it. You said they were drug dealers or something more respectable. They weren't invited to parties. They were seen as spiritually unfit, religiously unclean. Really because of two reasons. One, because they were collaborators. They were collaborators with the Roman imperialists and occupiers who'd usurped God's people and God's land. And it was as foul and dastardly to first century Jews to see their fellow Jews working with Rome as it was Jews in Nazi Germany in the 30s seeing Jews collaborating with the Nazis. You you getting a feeling for how intense the hatred was for them? Not only were they collaborators, they were crooks. They didn't just take money from the people to give to Rome but they oppressed and swindled and cheated themselves as well. Because however much they get, and I know that many of you know this, however much they could tax you beyond what Rome required, they were allowed to keep. So they would push that as far as it could go without creating a revolt. If they create a revolt, ropes are going to come in and squash it and take them out of their position. So you knew that they were getting rich off of your oppression. It's a tale of two very different men going up to pray. But it's also a tale of two prayers, of two prayers. Look at the first, let's look at the first of verses 11 and 12 that are recorded from the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself. Now he stood by himself likely for a different reason than the tax collector. He stood by himself because he, he sensed that he was superior to those around him. He didn't want to be corrupted by the average people standing beside him. He stood by himself. Now, he would have stood up, and he would have faced heaven. He would not have bowed and put his hands together. He would have faced heaven and declared out loud, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, we could pause right there and give him snaps, at least, for personal confidence and self-affirmation, which we're so huge on now. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, (laughs) like this sad sight right over here. What a pathetic man, creeped in here accidentally. Maybe he's forgotten where he is. And now, just to remind God of how awesome he is, I hope you don't feel the need to do that in your prayers, he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, let's look at this. Let's look at this here briefly. Alistair Begg uh, does a great work on this where he, he points out that the Pharisee claims for his righteousness three elements of obedience. Three elements of obedience. The first is comparative obedience. A comparative obedience. We talked about in 11, the very first part of the verse. He stands and he thinks, God, that he's not like other people compared to others. God, I stand ahead above. I am an Everest heavenly father on the plains of human beings. And I thank you for that. The issue is not whether you or I are better or worse than another. See, the issue in my life and with my heart and mind is not whether I'm better than you or, I mean, look at the list he picks. We might have said, God, I thank you that I am not like others, like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, but I'm better. He picks evildoers, which is a pretty broad category, robbers. And adulterers, if you've ever been broken into and robbed, Sharon and I have, there's a visceral anger and sense of having been violated that you feel that's very hard to describe unless you've experienced it. But in their day, to be robbed could cost you your life because resources were so scarce. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even on a lesser degree, I thank you that I'm not like this sad sack over here. The issue in my life, friends, is not whether I'm better or worse than you or someone else. But who I am before the gaze of God. And that is the issue in your life. Your neighbor sitting beside you, your spouse sitting beside you, is not your gauge. The holiness and beauty and wonder and glory and righteousness and purity of God Almighty seen clearly in Jesus Christ is the only gauge for your life and mine. Comparative obedience is a losing game. Because as good as you are, if you want to play this game, someone's better. Are they not? You're, a, you're an all-star varsity player in high school, somebody who just gets by in college and is laughed out of tryouts in professional ball. Comparative obedience. He also cites a a negative obedience. He, He comforts himself as he compares himself to these other people by reminding himself of the sins he hasn't committed. God, I'm thankful that I haven't robbed anyone. I don't do acts of evil. I don't commit adultery, at least outwardly, physically. The danger in this church is that These kinds of things become a smokescreen for us. Acknowledging the sins we haven't committed with pride becomes a smokescreen for us acknowledging the sins we have committed. And it helps us affirm ourselves and feel good about ourselves. You know who helps you keep it real, though? are children. If you have children, if you work with children, if you've ever been around children, or you've ever seen a child... A child will say what they perceive to be real about anyone around them. Whether it's you or some random person you're meeting on the aisle of a grocery store. I mean, where is the parent out there that hasn't been horribly embarrassed at one point or another by something you were thinking but your child happened to say as you were meeting someone else at Walmart or Target or Kroger or Publix? I saw a reel a couple of weeks ago that made me chuckle. It was of uh, this young mom, and she was trying on this black dress and kind of twirling and looking at herself in the mirror. And then you hear her daughter just off to the side, probably three or a young four, say, Mommy, are you pregnant? And the lady who's doing this, you know, trying on her dress, smiles and kind of hangs her head. She says, No, sweetie, I'm not. And then the child reaches up and says, What is this? It looks like there's a baby in there. She says, no, there's not a baby in there. Children help keep it real, right? They push through the smoke screen and remind you who you are. Two nights ago, three maybe, I was putting our twins down, and I was uh, sitting in between their, their beds. And Zeke was on one side and Zane was on the other, and I was kidding with them about wanting to go to kindergarten with them the next day. And I said, can't I go? I want to go, and I want to sit in a chair and a desk beside you. And they both giggled and said, no, you can't go, Daddy. And I said, oh, man, why can't I go? And Zeke had his back to me. He was facing the window and had his thumb in his mouth. We're working on that. Zane was uh, to my left, and he was facing me, and Zane said, because you're too old. And then without even rolling over, removing his thumb, Zeke said, and fat. So there it is. Comparative obedience, negative obedience. God, I thank you that I haven't done these things. And this makes me feel better about not actually having to confess the things I have done. And finally, there's a legalistic obedience in the way that the Pharisee prays. He again lists the good things he has done. I fast twice a week. Jews were commanded to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year. The Pharisee says the Lord may not have known what he was doing there, so to display my goodness in a way that he sees that I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The word here is, is kind of vanilla in English, the translation here from the Greek. But basically what the Pharisee is saying is I don't just tithe as I am commanded and instructed to do from my income because the first tenth belongs to the Lord. If I keep that and I spend it, on my vacation homes and my pool and my lawn care and my clothes and my fun, I am robbing from God and storing up just wrath with him. It belongs to him. He says, but I also tithe just in case on products I get, in case whoever was paid for them didn't tithe off of them. So I just tithe off of anything that comes into my house. Whether it's income or something, I purchase, I tithe some of that. I am extra righteous and legalistic. And if you and I aren't careful, that kind of ritualistic obedience, in whatever form it may take in your particular life or mine, can help us feel right before God and prevent us from focusing on the realities of our heart, which is what God is always after. God says, I know you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. But how's your heart? How's your heart toward me? How's your heart toward people? Is it soft and pliable? Is it humble and confessional? Do you understand your need for me? Not once, but daily. The great English preacher R.C. Ryle said, we are all naturally self-righteous. That's why a young child who you're teaching to use a spoon will scream mine at you when you attempt to remove something from their hand. We are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not as bad as some and that we possess something worthy of the favor of God. This is the great central disease of cultural Christians in the Bible Belt. A sense that they actually don't have to crawl in desperate need of forgiveness to Jesus. Raul goes on and says, but... <laughs> Let the eyes of our understanding be opened by the Holy Spirit and we will no longer talk of our own goodness. Let us see what there is in our own hearts and what the holy law of God requires and self-conceit will die. Which brings us to the prayer of the tax collector. He stands at a distance in verse 13 likely quite uncomfortable being in a place where he knows he is not welcomed and probably has rarely been. And as he stands there taking in the scene, Jesus tells us in Luke records, he would not even look up to heaven. He didn't feel worthy to gaze up as the other Jews in prayer were doing but beat his breast, which was a common practice of women at funerals and in other times of mourning, displaying a a visible sense of deep, deep distress and mourning over who he is before God, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This This is the cry of every heart that's ever been redeemed. And it does not have to get fancier than that. You don't have to quote scripture back to God for him to save you. If the cry of your heart is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As you hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ, that is the cry of redemption that opens the kingdom of God, to a sinner. A more close translation here is make atonement for me. God, make atonement for me, the sinner. The definite article is here, but it doesn't read well in English. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. But what he says here is the sinner. Maybe he understands himself as worse than anyone else standing in the temple courts that day. Maybe he understands himself as worse than anyone else he knows, standing before God. God, make atonement for me, the sinner. You know what had happened here is exactly what Ryle says. The eyes of his understanding had been opened by God's Spirit, and he could no longer talk of any personal goodness. He'd seen what was there in his own heart and what God actually requires. And any self-conceit that might had lived at one time in this tax collector was gone. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Have you understood the mercy of clarity pouring into your life by the goodness of God? This is what we read about in Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 through 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. Something has happened now. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that is actually that which the law was pointing towards. Toward all of Scripture was awaiting. This righteousness is given Through faith in Jesus Christ, or or it might read, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, black and white, poor and rich, educated and uneducated, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. Do you know that? Has this ever happened to you? Oh, I know you go to church. I know you've sat in Bible studies, you've led them, you've taught them, you've served, you've given. Most of you. But has this happened? Can you sing with brothers and sisters in Christ the great words of this hymn? My soul, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Can you sing with the words of a newer hymn before the throne of God when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within? Upward i look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Do you know this is your reality today? Finally and briefly, it's a tale of two destinies. Two men, two prayers, and two destinies. Verse 14, Jesus is the one who knows all and the one who will judge all. It says, I tell you that this man, this tax collector rather than the other, went home justified before God. And don't read all of Paul the Pauline theology into this this, because this idea wasn't there yet. He had simply been brought into fellowship with God, reconciled, forgiven. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Two different destinies. The one man left justified, the other one not. And he doesn't even know it, church. And this is the great danger. This is why we're in a series called false faith, not no faith. The Pharisee left feeling quite justified right before God. Because he wasn't like, other people he wasn't as bad as some and he was better than others he did some religious things Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 20 and says when you were slaves to sin you were free from the control of righteousness you gave yourself fully to sin enslaved actually by it what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of isn't that a powerful question what did all your wild behavior bring to your life those acts that you're now ashamed of, those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you're not just free to nothing. You're freed from slavery. See, this is the great truth this morning, church. You're either enslaved by sin or you're enslaved by our glorious God. But you're a slave to one or the other. Don't kid yourself. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, not death. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. No way around it. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. When you look back at Luke 18, Luke gives one additional story briefly at the end here. To help illustrate what is required to come to God. He tells this story which really goes with what we've just read. People were also bringing babies to Jesus, verse 15. For him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Little kids were getting in the way. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Let them come. don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Let me say this this is not a call to childish living, but to childlike faith. Childlike faith. As the band makes their way back up here and gets set up and begins to are uh, prepared to lead us in a time of response and reflection. I just want to make sure that we're all clear. It's not the innocence of the children that Jesus is pointing to here. Simple, short observation will reveal to you that children are not innocent. That they are conceived with sin woven into their fabric. They come out sinning against you, their mom or dad, as soon as they're given the opportunity and continue even when they know it's sin. The Bible is honest about this. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Some of you, depending on your season of life, this may become your theme verse today. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline or correction will drive it far away. It's not their innocence Jesus is pointing to. It's their utter helplessness. Do you know that helplessness this morning? We don't like it. We're a people, a culture, a nation that's built on everything that's antithetical to helplessness and humility and meekness. Karl Barth, the great German theologian, the 20th century said this and I find this so illuminating we dislike hearing that we are saved by grace alone we don't really appreciate that God doesn't owe us anything that we are bound to live from his goodness alone that we are left with nothing but the great humility of a child presented with many gifts. To put it bluntly, we do not like to believe. We would much rather do. I don't know where you are this morning, but it is my earnest plea that if you recognize yourself in the life of this Pharisee as one who's sincere, but who's resting on anything other than the grace of God poured out for you in the person and work of Christ, that this morning you will cry out with the tax collector, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make atonement for me, the sinner. I trust the provision you've made for me in Christ. Let's pray, and as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. Heavenly Father, we in this blessed nation may be more accountable to you than any people in human history due to the degree of gospel witness that has long stood before us, the access we've had to the preaching and teaching of the gospel, to the scriptures to the witness of faithful churches throughout our land. God, I pray this morning that if anyone in here is resting on anything other than you, that this would be the morning that changes. God, that in this sacred place at this holy time, by your spirit, you would save the lost. God, you would draw to a significant recommitment Some who long ago have had their eternity sealed by you. But God, who have drifted. And when it comes to living each day, know that they are living little different than those who don't know you. Move and stir in this place, God. And as we receive offerings. Father, pray that you'd bless those that give. God, and we trust you to do with it all that's needed, to stretch it as far as it needs to go, to multiply it in ways that maybe we can't see, God. We pray in Jesus' name. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.